From the Department of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin, welcome to The Surgery Set, a podcast that explores the field's latest innovations with the pioneers at its cutting edge. I'm your host, Jonathan Kohler, an assistant professor in pediatric surgery here in Madison, home of the Badgers. Thank you for joining us. Whenever we discuss medicine, we tend to focus on what happens within the walls of hospitals and clinics. We discuss the innovations in technique and technology that make our jobs easier as surgeons and help us to help others. But medicine isn't bound by the walls we practice in. There's far more to a patient's experience before they even step foot in an emergency room. As convenient as it would be, our patients don't just appear on our operating tables, they're transported there. In February of last year, we at the surgery set began a deep dive into an area of medicine that is too often overlooked. Transportation. The intense and calculated work being done by EMTs, paramedics, med flight pilots, and ambulance drivers is critical to the care of a patient. In the Surgery Set Transport series, we will shed light on what this work looks like and learn about the innovations in medical transportation that are saving lives. In this first episode, I sat down with Phil Jennings, the senior lead pilot for UW MedFlight, to discuss the decisions he has to make for each flight, what a MedFlight dispatch call actually sounds like, and his journey to becoming a pilot. It is a great pleasure to have on the surgery set today our senior lead pilot from UW MedFlight, Phil Jennings, for the this our first series on aeromedical transport and the transport process, because I think that is such a, at least for me, a, an unknown territory, right? I see the patients when they hit the door, but the story of everything that's happened before they hit the door is incredibly interesting and something I recently realized I know nothing about. So um, welcome to the surgery set and thanks for, for coming to tell us all about that that first impact, our first uh, first introduction to the patients that UW is having in the field. Thank you, Jonathan. It's great to be here. Uh, just maybe tell us a little bit about what it is that brought you to be the senior pilot for UW MedFlight. How did how did you become a helicopter pilot? I know at least my son is listening anxiously <laughs> to hear that. Right. Lots of kids are listening and probably some adults as well. I was in New York City and I was over near the 34th Street helipad and I saw these sightseeing helicopters, what I later learned were sightseeing helicopters taking off and landing and I was completely intrigued by the precision of it. I had no particular interest, unlike your son, in aviation as I was growing up. But for some reason, on this particular day in the mid-80s, I was completely uh, intrigued by so what this, was going on. you weren't five years old at the time? Mm -hmm. No, I was in college. Oh, my gosh. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah, I was, I was, I was, and I grew up with a kid who was a childhood friend, and he was all about aviation, and, and it was sort of, like, boring to me, and I didn't really pay much attention to it. But for some reason, that particular day, and the next thing you know, I was at Fort Jackson in South Carolina doing push-ups at 4.30 in the morning in the rain. Wow. And I thought I was going to join the Army for five years. I stayed for 22 years, just short of 22 years, oh and I gosh. had a great military experience. As a helicopter pilot. As a helicopter pilot, yeah. I went right basic training to Warrant Officer Candidate School, right through the flight training curriculum, and I stayed with it for my entire career and had a great time. So uh, like many of our pilots here, of which there are 12, the vast majority of us have prior military experience, and specifically most of us are retired military pilots. And that experience gives us the diversity of experience that we need in order to 
successfully fulfill the mission of UW Med Flight. So I retired from the Army in 2010, and uh, a year before that, I was in the National Guard, I uh, started flying at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, and I was there for several years. Then I went to Mercy Medical Center in Des Moines, all as part of a plan to get to Madison because, uh, you know, we live in Madison. And so I've been here for about six years, and here I am. Wow. So that military training, the, the, the value of that is that you're doing something similar to MedFlight, which is flying to unexpected locations without necessarily designated. You're not flying airport to airport, and and right. and you're flying in all different conditions. That's the value, I would imagine, right? Right. It's it's very diverse, and I was. It just turned out that that most of my career was spent as basically a VIP, an executive oriented pilot probably a combination of factors. One is maybe my personality, but also kind of my interest and and also the need. So that's kind of where I ended up. So a very customer-focused, customer-driven sort of thing. So I'm a medical helicopter pilot now as a civilian pilot, but I was never a medevac pilot during my time in the Army. And we're a little leery of medical medevac pilots trying to make the transition to medevac because in the military there's a mission mindset you know we're going to go out and save someone's life and there's an emotional component to that that's very difficult to to you know sort of unplug at some point later in life and so we have found that the pilots that make the smooth transition from the rigor of the military environment to a muted it's still very rigorous but it doesn't have the same you know, snappiness of the military. We think of it in terms of flights. We don't think of it in terms of missions. We don't have a mission to go save a life. We have a task to conduct a flight safely. And there really is a material difference there. I can totally see that, like that you don't want in the civilian world to have people who are like, well, it's raining and it's icy and like, but by gosh, we've got a mission. We're going to get out there and do this thing, right? You want somebody who says, my job is to get this person, this very important person, from this point to this point safely. And if that means not flying, then we're going to do it by not flying. Frequently, right? the best decision we make is the decision not to fly. As, as, as counterintuitive as that may seem to be, and we'll talk about the safety implications of what we do, but, but the best decision is frequently the decision not to fly. That is so much like surgery because, like, I think often the hardest and most important decision that we make in surgery is that decision not to operate. To say, like, operate on this patient would be the wrong thing. It'd be the easy thing, but it'd be the wrong thing and it'd be the dangerous thing for the patient. I mean, so fascinating. So I, I definitely want to talk about the whole safety issue and how we think about what's possible and what's not possible and what's safe and what's not safe in in the decision to transport patients. First, though, let's listen to the act of uh, of flying. So we've got some audio of a dispatch and the process that goes into um, making that decision and and flying the helicopter uh, to pick up a patient. Right. We've taken a dispatch from the time of the initial call to the time the medical crew gets the first information on the patient when they're airborne. And we've compressed it down. This would span over about, you know, 12 to 18 minutes or so, but we've compressed it down just for the purposes of the podcast. So I'll have a couple of comments on the other side of this audio. Fantastic. Well, let's take a listen. Let's see this is Ryan. It is back in the dispatch. All what's available in that place? Uh, we should be uh, available here at Okay, we got a car versus three. Probably will be sending them 
Alright, so maybe just give us a little sense of what it is that we just heard. Well, here's what we didn't hear. And yeah. this is this is this is really the most important thing. What we what we heard is what we didn't hear. And and what we didn't hear is that we're going for a 17-year-old male who was involved in, you know, an, an ATV accident or a child who's just been burned or uh, a 79-year-old woman who's having a stroke. Right. We make a decision as a crew to accept a flight based on three pieces of information. Number one, where is the patient? Number two, how much do they weigh? Because that bears on our fuel decisions. And number three, what is their ultimate destination? Mm. We are not interested at this point in anything about the patient. Obviously, once we learn the patient's weight, we can make some inferences as whether it's an adult or a child. But, but by and large, we don't know anything about the clinical condition of the patient and, and what their final destination is going to be other than a hospital. And that's a deliberate choice on your right. part, right? Is that, to, is that to try to get away from that mission must go save this sad story and we more chop, like, can we do this technically? Right. We chop, the, we chop the emotion of the mission out of it right at step one. It's never interjected into the, into the process. So we're, we're almost doing, if you will, kind of an aviation science experiment. Can we go from here to there with this patient, with this weight, and come back? Mm -hmm. Yes or no? Right. If yes, then we move on to the next step. If no, that ends it. So you're not making, you're never making the decision like, well, we could do it, but since it's just a broken ankle, we're not going to try. Right. right, because the, the, the next domino to fall is it's a drunk driver. Right. Or it's a person who's lived a long, full life, and someone's going to make a decision that maybe they've lived a long and full enough life. 
Right. We don't make any of those decisions. Right. No value judgment. It's no value Can we get from here to there? It's an aviation science experiment. Okay. Can we do this right now? Mm-hmm. And it's typically not in an hour, but in the next, you know, 10 minutes, can we do it? Yes or no? Yeah. And, and the other side of that, in the, sort of the inverse of it, is that once we decide not to do a flight, we generally don't know anything about what didn't occur. Mm-hmm. We don't know anything about the patient. We don't know anything about those details. That's that's sort of concealed from the crew in a general sense. Partly because we don't want to have the second guessing and we don't want to have the decision that was made today bear on a decision that's you know made tomorrow. Right. Um, Fascinating. The other thing, in addition to the process being largely blind, is that it is very efficient. You know, think of it as a string. This is a very, very tight string. Mm-hmm. Uh, the call comes in. Uh, our parameter is from within a minute. Our communication specialists alert the pilot of a flight request so the pilot can make a weather decision, which the typical, which the, typically the pilot makes within about two minutes. And then roughly speaking, within a couple of minutes after that, the pilot will have done the risk assessment, will have done the weight and balance calculations, will have done the fuel planning calculations, will have addressed any specific weather considerations. And if we're going to do an instrument flight plan, which we'll talk about shortly, they will have filed an instrument flight plan. We have an iPad for that, so it's a very quick process. We literally hit a couple of buttons as we're walking up the stair. It's uploaded up the stairs. It's uploaded to an FAA website, and our flight plan is filed, and we're ready to pick up our departure wow. clearance. So it is a very efficient process uh, from start to finish. We don't know what's happening, but we know once we put the gears in motion that we're likely to achieve the accomplish the flight. And this is all happening kind of within the hangar space it of, is. of MedFlight, which is like on the roof of the building. And so everybody's there, Correct. physically Every- present. No one's driving in from home to get on the helicopter. Right. Everybody is, is physically present, whether they're present here at our base at the UW Hospital or whether they're present at our remote base at the Mineral Point Airport in Iowa County okay. or at our new base in Portage on the campus of Divine Savior Hospital. They're present at all times. Wow. Tell us a little bit about the sort of, you know, we now have three bases of our of our facility we have very state-of-the-art equipment about to become more state-of-the-art which I, I also want to talk about but give us a, a sense of the trends of what's going on in helicopter medicine because this is not something that's been going on forever i guess my first introduction to helicopter medicine was the that intro scene to mash right with right. the the helicopters with stretchers sort of on the outriggers flying through the mountains of California doing business as Korea. Right. Um, but civilian air medical transport is is much, came into being much later than that. Right? Much later. In a meaningful way, it came to be, came to sort of arrive in the days that are sort of widely characterized as the Wild West in the late 70s and early 80s, mm. mostly sponsored by hospitals. Okay. Uh, hospitals saw that as a way of linking to the community and, and a supply line for patients. But the the industry, as is so often the case in the United States, the industry took off just based on market forces and the regulatory framework to contain it was lagging. And those early days were really rough in terms of of safety and, and an accident rate, which was through the roof, partly because there really had never been an adequate opportunity to figure out what is the right way to do something because it was brand new. And, and yeah. that's, that's typical in many things. But unfortunately, in this case, the consequences were very high. Was it modeled off of the medevac of Vietnam, right? It was. And was it be, like, I imagine there must have been a big influx into the civilian population of helicopter pilots from the war. Right. And so they brought with them kind of the against all odds, you know, we have a mission and we're pilots and, you know, we're going to go do it. 
because yeah. somebody needs us. And they didn't look at it as an aviation science experiment, you know, quotes around that. They looked at it more as, I have a mission right now. I'm going to go do it. And we'll just deal with the bad weather along the way. Yeah. And and sometimes that did not turn out well. Right, right. And, it, you know, whatever the the benefit potentially to one individual patient, the benefit to the system is to be safe, right? To build safe systems. And that's, I imagine that's kind of like the trend that we've seen, right? It is, but there are uh, there are factors, you know, and, and so the, the number, they're really kind of five, four or five big trends here. Number one is that the number of medical helicopters in service in the United States has grown steadily since the development of this industry. So that there's been some slight retraction very recently, but generally speaking, the there's been a steady march to increase the number of helicopters. Okay. The second trend is that the number of patients transported per helicopter is slowly trending down, huh. which is interesting. Stabilizing, you know, nationally roughly 350 to 400 patients per year, give or take. Per 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 aircraft. Aircraft. Okay. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, there are some programs that lag below that. They're in the 250 to 275, roughly speaking, underperforming. Uh-huh. Uh, <clears throat> and then there are other helicopters like our own where we exceed that average substantially mm-hmm. every year. The next trend is that the total number of patients has been trending up. So, you know, the, the figure is, is moving up roughly 400,000 patients per year. So in order to reconcile that, the number of patients flown per helicopter is down, but the number of total patients flown is up. That means more helicopters are flying fewer patients per year, which, which arguably leads to some of the decisions that result in problems down the road because there's this economic survival consideration. Right. In terms of accident rates, this is, um, this is its own sort of frustrating point of fact, the accident rate has stabilized now in the, you know, mid early 2000s at roughly plus or minus five accidents involving medical helicopters per 100,000 flight hours. Hmm. And the fatal accident rate is stabilizing at roughly plus or minus two accidents per 100,000 flight hours. So we have gotten safer, but when you compare what we do with what airlines do, they have achieved basically absolute zero. Scheduled airline operations in the United States, very important point because it's not the case in the European and, and the rest of the world experience, but we have essentially achieved through a regulatory framework absolute zero in terms of fatalities in U.S. commercial aviation. At the other end of the extreme in the United States are sort of general aviation pilots that, you know, fly their own planes on the weekends or in the evenings, whatever, and they have their own accident issues. Helicopter EMS operations fall kind of in between those bookends, Hmm. um, and it's driven largely by two factors. Number one, the airlines are going to airports and they have the benefit of full weather reporting at their departure and arrival airports. Number two, they're on a schedule. Medical helicopters have neither of those advantages, so we're not operating on a schedule. We're operating on an on-demand basis, and we are almost never flying to airports. So we don't have the benefit of weather at our destination. So So the only weather reports you're getting are are the weather reports that exist at airports. Like, you can't know the exact weather at a field in the middle of... DeKalb County. We have a tool that was developed to support helicopter EMS operations that takes 
whether from various sources, a science lab at a high school may have a teacher who's interested in meteorology and they've sort of set it up and that information may flow into the system. And it's, it's literally, it's kind of the YouTube of weather. You know, everyone just sort of pours whatever they want to pour in and you sort of sort of sift through it and yeah. make a decision if you like it or not. And, and, and we use that, but we use that only to turn down flights. We can't accept a flight based on that information. So the only way we can really accept a flight is with approved U.S. government National Weather Service weather. As it turns out, uh, many destinations that medical helicopters go to are between reporting stations. And a terminal area forecast is only good for within five miles of an airport. It is a terminal area forecast. It's not a area forecast. So right. we have that as well. The problem is the area forecast involves lots of compromises and it's 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 very general and it's hard to make the definitive ceiling and visibility judgment calls that we need to make. It's, yeah. done. it's not a tool for that. So it's, a, it's very inferential, like what it looks like where you're going. Very much so. Yeah. Yeah. So we're always interpolating. Yeah. We're uh, putting our thumb on the scale in favor of one report and taking our thumb off the scale for another report and trying to do our, our best. Mm -hmm. The airlines have the advantage of flying two pilots, going to an airport, departing from an airport, having full weather on a schedule. Yeah. We have none of those advantages. Right. So right. in 2008, there was a rash of accidents and the National Traffic Safety Board, which is the investigator, which is essentially the counterpart to the Federal Aviation Administration, which is the regulator, mm. um, essentially declared that as the low watermark in medical helicopter aviation in particular. There were 12 accidents, wow. seven fatal accidents, mm. and 29 fatalities associated with those 12 accidents. So that was, a, that was another wake-up call. There had been a wake-up call in the 90s. This was a second wake-up call. And the NTSB, in the course of their investigations, sort of zeroed in on three things. Number one, they zeroed in on the, the judgment or the lack of judgment or the bad judgment the pilots were making and the decisions and the actions that they took based on their faulty judgment. Uh, number two is the lack of a safety management system, a very deliberate, risk-oriented way of assessing what occurs, you know, at two o'clock in the morning. And then Significantly, they zeroed in on the pilot's lack of situational awareness. And their strong recommendation was to develop simulator-based and scenario-based training opportunities for pilots who would be in situations, because our simulators have gotten so good, it basically replicates the aircraft, put them in situations that they're departing and the weather goes to zero you know, in a heartbeat. Yeah. And and that has paid benefit. That has paid strong dividends yeah. reliably for us. So there are now rules around that, like pilots must do a certain amount of simulation. They must simulate certain conditions type thing. There's not a rule, but a lot of the aviation safety issues in particular have been addressed through voluntary compliance. The NTSB has led, and there's a lag, so the NTSB is investigating these accidents. They hold hearings. They make findings. And then they jump up and down. Okay. <laughs> and the FAA, which is, you know, a bureaucracy and it's confined by the administrative law process, notice of proposed rulemaking, comment period, all of that. They're subject to the pressures of the lobbyists. And 
what the NTSB sees as potentially the silver bullet to solve certain problems, the FAA considers, but on a long tape delay, mm-hmm. a long tape delay. And it, it takes years for what the NTSB envisions as the solution for the FAA to actually integrate into a rule. Right. And so many of the operators, and the University of Wisconsin is one of them, has said, okay, we buy it and we will comply on a voluntary basis to improve our operations irrespective of the timeline established by the FAA. Yeah. And it really makes a difference. So there's like a, there's sort of a continuum, right? Like there's the bare minimum, right? Like we follow the FAA rules. We're not doing anything illegal, right? Right. All the way up to like, we follow every NTSB recommendation and maybe like come up with our own rules on top of that internally to make sure that we're as safe as possible. Talk about sort of like, where do we sit on that continuum as an, as an institution here? We are at the, very top of the pyramid. Hmm. Think of the medical helicopter industry in the United States, just to have a mental picture uh, as a pyramid. There are roughly a thousand medical helicopters in service in the United States today. Wow. Take that pyramid and horizontally chop it so there's a third on the top and two thirds on the bottom. The bottom third represents the vast majority of medical helicopters in the United States, which are single engine helicopters that are limited to flights under visual flight rules, which means that the primary navigation is by reference to the ground. Mm. So if the ceiling is a thousand feet above the ground, the cloud ceiling is a thousand feet above the ground, and the visibility is greater than three miles, then flight operations can be conducted under visual flight rules. Was that day and night or mm-hmm. is it? Okay, so yes. you can still fly at night under those rules. But yes. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and there are a couple of other wrinkles to that that's probably too much inside baseball for, for our time today. But, but essentially, the world is divided basically under visual flight rules or instrument flight rules. And a thousand foot ceiling and three miles visibility is the, is the point of demarcation. Okay. In order to operate under instrument flight rules, you have to have a twin-engine or multi-engine aircraft. That's the upper one-third of the pyramid. But as it turns out, not all medical helicopters in the United States are all multi-engine helicopters in the United States are actually equipped for IFR operations. So you have to take that upper third of the pyramid, so to speak, and chop it again. Yeah. And you're left with multi-engine helicopters that either can fly under instrument flight rules and those that cannot. Okay. And once you get to the t- very top of that pyramid, you're probably down to, I don't know the exact number, but probably between 30 and 60 medical helicopters out of the 1,000 wow. okay. that are fully equipped with not only the aircraft being a multi-engine aircraft, having all the requisite equipment required by the FAA, having a pilot who is qualified and current at the controls at any given time. And it really shrinks down. So if you think of, of you know, in response specifically to your, your question, where does UW stand? Think of it as a double helix. Mm-hmm. And the things that make a helicopter unique are Number one, the aircraft itself, and number two, how the aircraft is staffed. Mm. So most medical helicopters in the United States are staffed with a paramedic and a nurse, or possibly two nurses. At the University of Wisconsin and a few other similarly uh, situated medical helicopter programs in the United States, we are staffed with attending level emergency medicine physicians and a critical care nurse. So we have, in our strand, double, double helix, we have the most capable aircraft, and we have the most competent crew based on credentials. Yeah. So you put that together, we are at the top of the top 
of the top section of the pyramid. Yeah. And, and there are other programs like us around the United States, largely affiliated with academical, academic medical centers like the University of Wisconsin, who have voluntarily or culturally made the determination that these staffing and safety advantages inure to the, for the benefit of the patients right. that they serve. And that, that's a, it's a really important strategic decision. And it's 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 an, a decision that is not necessarily on its face the right financial decision, right? I mean, because you get paid the same, right? So you know, excuses always sound best to the person making them, right? <laughs> right. And so the decision to staff helicopters a certain way and the decision to employ certain helicopters is largely driven by financial considerations. Mm-hmm. And that becomes particularly acute when the number of patients being transported per year, as I said earlier, is trending downward. You know, somehow those gaps need to be captured and, and, and com- accommodated. Yeah. So if the reimbursement rate is largely fixed, which it is, then the incentive is to provide the service at the lowest possible cost. And the lowest possible cost, and you know, Dr. Mike Stewart, our medical director, will talk about the, the physician staffing model, but you know, it's enough to say now that to staff it with physicians is more expensive than it is to staff with paramedics. Sure. That's a given. Yeah. The other side of it is, and this is really where the big expense is, by the way, is the equipment that's employed and how the aircraft are equipped. It's a huge variable in the equation. And there is a profound disincentive to equip the aircraft at the highest possible level. It's a, it's a perverse and counterintuitive safety incentive. And you wouldn't think that this stage of, of the game, that that's where we would be. But that is, in fact, where we find ourselves. Yeah. There's no escaping it. And, of course, like that, that accounting, that simplistic accounting, doesn't take into the account the fact that an accident is if nothing else, you know, really expensive. Accidents are really expensive. And, you know, I break, I think of safety and risk management in terms of a box. So draw a box on your paper, split it into four equal boxes. And then we look at it in terms of high frequency, low frequency, high consequence, and low consequence. The the easiest box to address is the low frequency and low consequence box. That's something we simply need a policy for. If we've got oil on the floor, we need to make sure there's no oil on the floor. Very easy. The other easy thing to do is something that is low consequence but high frequency. It keeps happening over and over again. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, we just need a policy. We need, to, we, need, we need some guidance that says we can't allow this to keep happening, and it's not going to take a lot to stop it from happening if we do X, Y, or Z. Boom. Sure. That's what we want. This is so much like surgery in the way we think about problem solving and addressing safety issues in surgery. That is so the, fascinating. The, yeah. the low frequency, low consequence. Yeah. We shouldn't have those, right? Right. The low frequency, high consequence, we should probably worry about. Yeah. Because right. we don't have a... Those are the things that are come back and bite you. Those yeah. are the things that come back. And that's where we find ourselves in, in helicopter EMS. Now, let's yeah. just get it to clear it up. If we have high frequency, high consequence events, mm-hmm. we need to stop. Right. Because th- th- we shouldn't be doing what we're doing. Yeah. Now, we've got a, a, a frustrating, and particularly in 2008, a very frustrating safety history in the United States. And so we haven't, as it turns out, gotten to the point where it's high frequency, high consequence, and we should stop. Right. But we still have the issue of low frequency, high consequence. And we see that in particular 
for medical helicopter accidents that occur at night because they are almost always fatals. Mm. During the day, there and we could get into you know accident after accident, uh, what happens. Sometimes it's just purely bad judgment. The problem we have at night, in addition to being fatal, is that we almost always tie those accidents back to weather. Mm. Which brings us back to the advantages that UW Health has made the very prudent decision to invest in as a countermeasure. So if we're flying along and we encounter bad weather, one of two things happens. Either we encounter the bad weather and we can deal with it, basically abort. Mm-hmm. Or, and this happens, which is why so many of these accidents are fatal, the crew doesn't detect the weather. They don't perceive the weather until it's too late. They fly into the clouds. And because the pilots may not be proficient with instrument flying and instrument flight skills, they lose control of the aircraft and they crash. Mm-hmm. So our approach at the UW Hospital and at other programs that share our inclination for voluntary compliance with the guidelines established by the NTSB is to provide our pilots and to equip our aircraft with the countermeasures that we know solve that problem. Specifically, our pilots here are all fully instrument flight qualified. In mm. fact, we won't even have a pilot, a visiting pilot, a relief pilot, nothing. Our Every pilot that flies a UW med flight aircraft, regardless of the time of the day and regardless of the weather, is fully instrument qualified and proficient. Mm. And so that allows us to do a, a couple of things. Most obviously allows us to fly when the weather is below the thousand and three minimums that that keep VFR only, visual flight rules only aircraft from flying in the first place. They can't take off by FAA regulation. But let's say the weather is a 600-foot ceiling and two miles visibility. Well, that's perfect weather for us, provided the temperature is right and you know we don't have icing in the clouds as we have in the winter months. And so if, if that's the case, then we would be able to do a flight that not only another crew wouldn't be able to do at all, but we can do it with a high degree of safety. Yeah. The other side of it is, and that may only be 30% of it, the 70% of the advantage of our IFR equipment and our IFR proficiency is that when the weather deteriorates, and we have leading indicators of weather deterioration, we have an immediate plan B in our back pocket. And Mm -hmm. we deal with the deteriorating conditions almost effortlessly. It is no stress for us. So you just switch from a VFR approach to an IFR approach kind of midstream. Yep. Yeah. We we will more often than not, if the weather is marginal, we will file an IFR flight plan mm-hmm. with the FAA. And so we're already in that mode because one of the things that really snags helicopter crews is their inadvertent encounter with bad weather. Yeah. It's the inadvertent part of it. It's the unplanned part of it. So right. they're on an unscheduled flight, unlike the airlines, yeah. which can deal with this weather without any difficulty because they're on an instrument flight plan to begin with. So when we are caught by the weather, we as an industry are caught by the weather, we have this problem where we frequently lose control of the aircraft. So UW Health, in addition to equipping our aircraft, we have made a substantial investment in creating instrument approach procedures just like exist at, at runways to airports all around the United States, including the Madison Airport. We have an, an obstacle departure procedure from the UW hospital where we depart on a very prescribed and specific procedure into the clouds. We join a low-level instrument flight route 
that takes us to the starting point, which is really a sequence of GPS points that lead us to the hospital helipad out in the areas that we serve. Yeah. And so we are we're flying right through the weather that keeps other people on the ground or causes aircraft to crash when they have an inadvertent encounter and an un- unanticipated encounter with it. Yeah. So we have the tools here, as do other hospitals, that allow us to eliminate the surprise, particularly at night. Yes, mm-hmm. we fly with night vision goggles, but that doesn't solve, they don't solve every problem. Right, they won't see through the clouds. Right. right. Yeah. Well, I maybe identify the cloud, but we can see through fog. And so what happens uh. is frequently through thin obscurations, crews will be flying with night vision goggles, and there may be a crew member in the left front seat next to the pilot, and they'll be seduced into this weather because they yeah. kind of see through it, and someone will look uh. under their goggles and say, holy cow, we're in the clouds. So. We make, when the weather is marginal, we have the advantage of making the decision to to not fly into the weather unintentionally. We fly into bad weather intentionally Mm -hmm. because we have the tools to do it. And you know that it's there and and it's manageable. Exactly. So the advantage of, of flying under instrument flight rules is that it compresses the decisions. And when you study the accidents that have occurred in the industry, you realize that the vast majority, like 90%, one person sort of attributes 94% of the the accidents to pilot judgment. Mm. And I happen to think it's not because the pilots have bad judgment. I think it's that the pilots don't have all the information. Right, right. And so they don't really know. You know, airline pilots going to airports don't have this problem because they have all the information. Yeah. But the pilots are doing their very best with limited information. Imagine if you were going into surgery and, you, you know, you had you didn't have imaging. Right. Yeah, yeah. This is one of the things, like, why we get CT scans before we right. go into the belly. People say, well, once you get in there, you're going to see everything anyway. Well, it doesn't quite work that way. Like, you need to have that assessment beforehand to sort of know what's involved so that you're prepared to deal with it. Right. right. And just yeah. like the, the anesthesiologist don't encounter the patient for the first time typically in the OR, you know, there's some sort of discussion with the patient. Right. What, what might be a problem for you? Exactly. Yeah, Same yeah. kind of thing. So I don't think that the pilots are making bad decisions. I think the pilots are making the best decisions they have with the limited information, some of which is not pertinent. Right. So, But you don't know what's not pertinent. Right. right? So the advantage of our instrument flight rule capability is that it requires a different set of skills, but it's much more procedural. Mm -hmm. So it takes, to some extent, some of the judgment out of the equation because we're not trying to dodge the weather. We'll confront the weather head on. Now, there are certain things we can't fly in. Number one, we don't fly in thunderstorms which is a spring, summer, fall phenomena. We don't fly in ice, which is a spring, fall, winter phenomena. And we don't fly in low fog. So where everything is kind of socked in either during the day or at night, we don't fly in that. And the reason for that is our fuel limitation. Typically, the weather system that causes widespread fog causes it in an area that's large enough to encompass our entire fuel range. So we can't Mm -hmm. depart and we can't land and if we don't get to where we want to go, we don't have the fuel to get to a safe alternate. Second place, yeah. Right. Wow. So those three, those are the big three that, that knock us out, regardless of, of how we're of how we're equipped. Right. So it's not that like IFR means like you'll never turn down a flight. You must, you know, you, you can fly to anything. There's still limitations and, yeah. and prescriptions around what's safe to fly. In. Right. And so whereas I think the the VFR pilots and crews do their very best to make decisions. Our instrument flight rule, although it requires a different set of skill and a different type of judgment, is a judgment that 
establishes brighter lines Mm -hmm. and we work within tighter, more precisely prescribed parameters in terms of decision making. And the flying is inherently procedural. The combination of the procedural nature of it Plus the technology advantage. You know, we all have capacity. We all have bandwidth. And I often, you know, you hear about people kind of losing control, whether it's a pilot or a surgeon or whatever. And, and you know, you wonder why that chefs, you see it on television. Yeah, I mean, yeah, chef yeah. You like lose your situational yeah, awareness goes, and just get overwhelmed. Yeah. Guy goes bananas over, <laughs> you know, something that doesn't seem, you know, worth going bananas right. over, right? Well, I think people get to their, their bandwidth capacity. And so in the aviation context, we have to allocate our bandwidth. Our personal bandwidth. We have to allocate it to to flying, heading altitude and airspeed, uh, and we also have to allocate it towards decision making. Well, one of the NTSB recommendations was an increased deployment and reliance on autopilots. So all of, of course, all of our aircraft are equipped with autopilots, and if you were to fly with us, I think you would note that our pilots, you know, at the earliest opportunity, it's a speed thing, but basically at the earliest opportunity, the autopilot is fully engaged. So we've got a destination in our GPS. Our GPS couples to our autopilot. Our autopilot flies the aircraft at prescribed heading altitude and typically speed based on a power setting, and off we go. Well, once you take that task away from the pilot, you free up bandwidth, you free up mind share capacity, however you want to characterize it, for our pilots to, to think. Mm. And to strategize, I suppose there are days, you know, when you're in the operating room where you say, God, I wish I could, gosh, I wish I could hit a, hit a pause button here. Let's just think for a minute. Yeah, right. We, we'll sometimes do that. I'll put towels in and just sort of like take a step back, go look at the CT scan again, stretch, right? Like get your mind straight. So you're not worrying about the technical element of it. Yeah. We we don't have the luxury of that, but our right. compromise, you know, the show must go on because yeah. we're, we're right. in the you air. You can't just right? land and take, <laughs> yeah. a, take a little walk. And, right. Yeah, yeah we, we can't stretch and we, yeah. we can't put the towels in the, you know, in the in the surgical area. So we, we've got to think, well, that's the advantage of the autopilot. The autopilot allows us to sort of allocate our mental capacity more towards judgment and anticipating. And specifically with satellite weather and onboard weather radar, we can now really make a good assessment. And, mm-hmm. and you know, last year I had the situation we were flying. I said, I don't think we're going to make it into this airport. We were moving some crew around, very unusual situation, but the, the point stands. And I said, I don't think we're going to, I said this before departure, right? But we needed to to try it was yeah. fine and we got there it was just rain it was heavy rain and we're not going to see the airport in fact we didn't see the airport and, and we aborted the flight very unusual situation yeah. but the point is the autopilot was on we were following the procedure and I was studying the radar yeah onboard weather radar that's giving us real time information and so that's what we want to we want to occur and you know if we can compress the stuff that doesn't really require a lot of skill and put that on the autopilot and then leave the thing that's really a uniquely human judgment thing to the pilot. Right. I think we increase the chances of a successful outcome. Yeah. That we do this in the simulator, you know, we, we go to the simulator twice a year. All IFR pilots go to the simulator twice a year. And our training mindset isn't to do it until we get it right. It's to do it until we don't get it wrong. Mm, okay. Sure. So the power of repetition, particularly when we have a scenario for inadvertent instrument meteorological conditions, basically flying inadvertently into bad weather. Yeah. That is, I think, certainly for our pilots and pilots that share our training methodology, Mm -hmm. it's an automatic response. 
and right. and and we we have perfected it so that it is almost a non-event. We're not doing it. It's once like getting into unexpected bleeding, right? Like you always have to have in the back of your head, like, and it becomes just muscle memory. If something bad happened at any given moment, like what would you do? Right. Right. Yeah. And so doing it until you don't get it wrong right. is very different than doing it until you get it right. Yeah. 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 And that's the power of simulation. And that power of simulation plays out here downstairs in this hospital and it plays out in our flight simulators and in, you know, various places around the country. So yeah. we are really committed to that. All of this sort of begs the question, you know, where do we go from here? Right, because we're we're getting new new equipment, right? There's always ways to to make it better. Right. We have started and, you know, this is a really positive step for UW Health. We've started a fleet modernization initiative which is happening right now. We're basically getting four new aircraft. Wow. Three of which will be identical to the ones we have now. Okay. The fourth one will be the big brother of what we've been flying for years, and we'll have a maintenance spare. So when one aircraft goes in for scheduled or unscheduled maintenance, we've got an aircraft that we can immediately put in service and keep uh, all three of our bases in operation. Our new aircraft is uh, kind of a leading indicator of what we'll be receiving in 2020. It is wider, it's taller, it's longer. So not only is the floor space larger, but the cabin volume is larger. And there are some designs in the transmission which create for a much more efficient medical compartment. So the real advantages, the, the most obvious advantage will be a larger space for our medical crews. And Dr. Mike Strewall can talk about that when he's on the, on the podcast. But we're also upgrading and updating all of our avionics and all of the things in the cockpit. So it's, it's essentially all the tools we have now with some upgrades to the latest state-of-the-art technology, which we're, we're very, uh, very pleased to, to have. But it, you know, it kind of brings us back to where we, you know, brings us back to where we started, right? You know, we talked about this double helix, you know, it's how the aircraft are staffed and what the capabilities of the aircraft are. Yeah. And the fact that the reimbursement model is fixed and is is established irrespective of how the aircraft is staffed or how the aircraft is equipped is troubling. And, you know, so much of healthcare is moving in the direction of value-based medicine. It's personalized, right. but it's also a value. Yeah, it and seems, it's paying for quality, right? It's, it's not just for, paying for volume. It's not paying for production. Yeah. It's paying for good outcomes. And so, you know, at UW Health, the decision by our leadership team, to their great credit, has been made in favor of quality, mm-hmm. in favor of safety specifically. Patient safety is attributed to how we staff. Safety of the crew and the patient and the reputation of the hospital is attributed to the aircraft we fly. Absolutely. And who flies them. Yeah. And so it seems to me as though there's there's potential from a health policy perspective in the United States to, to tie the payment and the reimbursement to the way the aircraft is staffed and the way the aircraft is equipped. And if, mm-hmm. if you're not operating at the highest level, which we could argue would be the standard of care, yeah. then there'd be a deduction. Right. And the market can fix this problem. The market created this problem and the market can fix this problem. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the, the, all of this occurs against the backdrop of the Airline Deregulation Act, which was really conceived before the medical helicopter and medical helicopter transport industry took off. In spite of that, it's what we do has been sort of lumped into this federal legislation, which was really not intended for what we do in the first place. 
And so you get tremendous disparities. You get states that are oversaturated with medical helicopters, like Missouri, population mm. roughly the same as Wisconsin, but has many more helicopters than we do by a factor of like two and a half or three. Wow. Yeah. And you have other states, largely thinly populated states, or states where the payer mix is not attractive, and there's an insufficient number of helicopters to provide the services that are required, particularly over the long distances. So thin population, low payer, unattractive payer mix, not enough medical helicopters in an area where they probably need them. Yeah. So it's a tricky it's a tricky thing, but I think some some creative thought needs to be applied to coming up with a model that favors quality and favors safety and eliminates the disincentive for quality and safety that currently exists. Yeah. What a fascinating story because I think it's like it it takes everything from, you know, these like minute decisions about well, it's raining in Toma like what does that mean about our ability to get to Moston and takes it all the way up to the level of we really need laws or rules that change the way we pay for these services to to make it safer to fly to Moston today right right i mean it's specifically tonight <clears throat> yeah Fascinating. Because the yeah. the correlation between accidents at night and those accidents being fatal, we, you know, things that go bump in the night, that's what keeps me awake at night. And right. I want to make sure that our pilot team and our medical crews are fully prepared for all of the human factors considerations that's going to it. And it starts with, you know, well-trained pilots and crew members, but it also starts with them being at their very best. They've got to bring their A game. They need to have some sort of commitment to physical fitness. They need to eat right. They need to sleep right. They need to be ready to slay the dragon tonight. Right. And then they need to do that within a regulatory environment and a reimbursement environment that has all these other different pressures. I mean, it's it's the parallels to what we do in surgery are are many. Right. <laughs> right. It's amazing. Well, we live, you know, we live at the intersection of First and Main, right? And First Street is the aviation regulations and Main Street are the healthcare regulations. Yeah. So every time you walk in and out of this hospital, you hear one of our helicopters either landing or taking off or running up or whatever, you know, think about it in terms of right now, a event that that could have very high consequences is occurring but thankfully, UW Health has made an investment to contain that risk and to manage that risk in the most ambitious way possible. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. I've learned so much. This is like an area that I have always been fascinated by, but really limited to just sort of watching the helicopter take off and then hearing you know, my pager go off an hour later when the, the patient rolls into the emergency department. Right. Had no idea what happened in between. There's a lot that happens yeah. in between. Fantastic. Thank you thank for you having so, me. Thank you so much, and I hope we get you back again sometime soon. Sounds great. Thanks, Jonathan. Thanks to Phil Jennings for sharing his fascinating experience with UW MedFlight. Next in our transport series, the medical director for UW MedFlight, Dr. Michael Sturwald, discusses his experience practicing medicine in helicopters and how procedures in a helicopter differ from those on the ground. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, Stitcher, Overcast, wherever you get your podcasts. Invite your friends to listen in, and if you're feeling generous, please rate us on your favorite podcast app. It really makes a huge difference. Thanks. The Surgery Set is a production of the Department of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This episode was produced by J.P. Swenson and me, Jonathan Kohler. It was recorded by Chris Hansen and edited by J.P. Swenson. 
Our theme song is On Wisconsin, arranged and produced by Jamie Schmidt. Visit us at surgery.wisc.edu, where you can find links to Grand Rounds, free CME credits, and more. You can also check out the UW School of Medicine and Public Health video library for a wide range of medical education resources at videos.med.wisc.edu. Give our Facebook page a like and follow us on Twitter at Wisc Surgery. And I'm at J.E. Kohler, K-O-H-L-E-R. Please feel free to let us know how we're doing, rate and review us on your podcast app, and don't hesitate to let us know of any topics you'd like us to cover. Until next time, from all of us here at The Surgery Set, thank you for listening. On Wisconsin.